What's going on, guys? Welcome to episode number two of In the Crowd podcast. My name is Tyler Vanderloo. Thank you for tuning in yet again. On today's pod, we have former UCLA Bruin and St. John's Red Storm head men's basketball coach, Steve Lavin. This was an awesome conversation that we had earlier today. And Coach is an awesome guy, and I really do appreciate him taking the time to talk. We talked about a lot of different things from John Wooden to Gene Cady to his broadcast career now, and this was um, this was great. So sit back, enjoy this conversation with Steve Lavin. Let's go. With us now is former UCLA head coach and St. John's head coach, Steve Lavin. This is, uh, this is going to be awesome. I really do appreciate you taking time with us tonight and uh, joining us. Great to be with you, Tyler. Always enjoy talking basketball, and in particular, someone like yourself who's from a basketball family and has an appreciation for the game uh, because of the fact you grew up around basketball. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with my dad and my uncle, I've been basically running around at gym since I, you know, ever can remember, you know, four or five years old or something like that. But yeah, it's definitely in my blood. I, I you know, when I reached out to you and, and, and you said that you would do it, I was just jacked up. So I still am. How about, uh, how about my first question for it? You ever wear your uh, 95 national title ring? You know, I haven't worn the rings since my time at UCLA and Naturally, I was a assistant coach um, at UCLA for five years before becoming the head coach for seven years. And during the years as a head coach, uh, on home visits, and sometimes even when you're out in the road, and you're trying to, you know, gain any competitive edge, uh, you know, as a staff, we would wear those rings into home visits and when we visited high school campuses and whatnot, uh, because it naturally would be a, a good break the ice or conversation starter um, with the families. And, and ultimately when you're recruiting, you're trying to paint that big picture and, um, you know, separate or distinguish yourself from the competition. And so you utilize uh, things like your championship rings, but I haven't worn it, not even sure if it would fit uh, <laughs> since my last years at UCLA, which would have been the early 2000s, 2003 uh, when I left UCLA after, getting the pink slip, uh, haven't put it on since, but I treasure it. And a matter of fact, uh, we had a zoom meeting, uh, with the team and the entire coaching staff, a um, couple months back celebrating the 25th anniversary of the 1995 national championship, uh, that was played in Seattle and, uh, coach Herrick, who was the head coach and Mark Godfrey, Lorenzo Romar, who were also assistant coaches at the time and all the players, uh, Ed O'Bannon, Tyus Edney, George Zedek, Charles O'Bannon, some managers as well, team managers who, as you know, play a critical role in taking care of the details and doing some of the small things um, that go unnoticed, but they're not underappreciated by coaching staffs and players. And so it was great to get everyone at the same time uh, on a Zoom call. And uh, hopefully down the line, we can do it in person when the COVID-19 is – more under control, but uh, had a great time reminiscing and uh, telling stories a couple hours uh, into the late hours of the night. 
that yeah, I was just gonna say I can only imagine some of the uh, some of the jabs and hard times other players are probably giving each other during that type, especially when they're not in the same place. You can just kind of say what what you want without uh, <laughs> without really having to be there or whatever. That actually sounds pretty fun. What you mentioned that's a staff there at UCLA at the time. I mean, Jim Herrick, Mark Godfrey, Lorenzo Romar, yourself, obviously all four of you guys have been head coaches. Like what were, like, what was that coach's office? Like when you walk in, I mean, obviously at the time, you know, they weren't head coaches, you know, 20 years, uh, you know, whatever, 25 years later. I mean, that is a squad there. Yeah. It really was a group that uh, liked one another and enjoyed working with one another. And I think that's ideal. Um, having been on different staffs, that's not always the case. And you can't take it for granted. Uh, just like musicians or, you know, any vocation or craft, uh, it comes down to people and how those people work in concert, uh, work together in terms of trying to achieve, you know, at a high level. And um, that group, uh, credit to Coach Herrick because he's the one that ultimately brought all of us to UCLA to work together. Uh, really had special synergy. And um, the team that year in 1995 also uh, had tremendous leadership with Ed O'Bannon, George Zedek, and Tyus Edney. They were the seniors. And so the leadership, uh, both from the players, who were really an extension of the coaches on the floor that season. And uh, it was a group that just had resolve it had purpose and um that's why the team went 32 and one and uh cut down the nets and it was the only national championship uh that was won uh, at ucla in men's basketball uh, that wasn't coached by john wooden uh, there are 11 national championships but 10 of them uh john wooden was in charge and uh jim herrick it was the pinnacle kind of the you know, high point of his career. So it was really special to participate and be a part of that. And there was a lot of pressure uh, going into that season that if we didn't make a deep run, at least make it to the final four, uh, we were going to get the pink slip. And so uh, obviously the rest is history, win the national championship and uh, it changes everyone's life from there. What's uh, you mentioned that it was in Seattle. So I've, I've never experienced anything like this before in my life. Uh, okay. So what does the coaching staff do? Uh, okay, so you're in Seattle. You just won the national title. You go back to the hotel. Like, what do you sit and do? Do you pop on Sports Center and just like chill out? I mean, like I've heard other coaches. I think I say after they um, LSU just won the title in football this year. Like, you know, what you do, you know, afterwards. He's like, oh, I think I called a couple of recruits or something like that. It's like, do you really call recruits? I mean, can you just enjoy it for a night? I mean, like, what do you do? Well, you want to celebrate uh, with your basketball family and Coach Herrick. Uh, had a suite in the hotel, and all of his closest friends, uh, former players from his time at Pepperdine, uh, relationships that went back, you know, decades. Um, they were there to celebrate uh, with Coach Eric. And, of course, the assistant coaches all had uh, their families there as well. Uh, the players, you know, got a meal at the hotel, and then uh, we didn't see them until we got on the bus the following morning and headed to the airport. But uh, my sense and from what I've heard through the years is uh, they had a wonderful time, uh, you know, <laughs> late into uh, the, the evening and, and into the early morning hours and probably saw the sunrise and got, and yeah. got breakfast together. And this was before social media. 
thank goodness. So uh, it was right. a different time uh, there. The electronic age uh, has changed everything. Yeah. The 20 players oh, are so different now. Players are watching the sun come over the space needle. They're going, oh, we got to get on this plane <laughs> here in five minutes, guys. We got to get rolling. Yeah, and it continued. <laughs> probably deservedly so. And it, con- probably deservedly and so. it continued from there. I mean, uh, that was a memorable run because we went to Disneyland, did that. Uh, we were on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Um, we went to the White House. Uh, Bill Clinton was the president at the time. Uh, there was a parade in Los Angeles. Uh, there was a big event, a sellout at Poly Pavilion, a packed house uh, with the mayor and other dignitaries. So uh, it was really special. And of course, Coach Wooden was still with us at that point. So for him to see the uh, championship, the hardware brought back to Westwood, to see that banner drop from the rafters of Poly Pavilion, uh, still get goosebumps thinking about it. What was uh, what was Coach Wooden's role with that '95 team? Was he like a consultant, or just you know be around practice? Somebody you can ask questions to, or what? You know, he always made himself available. Uh, we'd go out to Encino, where his apartment was, and have a breakfast on his birthday, uh, which was October 14th, and so it was perfect timing because during those years, the season started on October 15th. So no one. Yeah, I was gonna say that's right around when college basketball starts. Yeah, and it's moved some. You know, it was October first. It was. It's been early. It's been later. But during those years, uh, we were starting the seasons on October fifteenth. So Coach Eric and the staff would go out and visit him, and he'd always, just in his natural way, uh, through conversation, through having conversation about you know different approaches and philosophies to basketball. But he dropped wisdom, and uh, again. You know, very humble, uh, but he'd go over the laws of learning, uh, you know, explanation, uh, demonstration, repetition, and correction. Uh, he was a master teacher. English was his subject. Uh, he had a love of language and words. He started his career in Dayton, Kentucky, at Dayton High School as an English teacher, and then South Bend Central High School in Indiana, uh, Indiana State when it was Division Two. He was a head coach there and then comes to UCLA. Uh, he was in the service somewhere in between there as well uh, in the Navy. Uh, But he would touch on Martin Luther King, uh, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, uh, Winston Churchill, Walt Whitman. Um, He was really a a deep thinker and a true intellect, uh, a Renaissance man. And so he'd always kind of inspire us after you left that meeting with him at the start of every season. And he was there we could call upon him. He'd come to practice on occasion. Um, but because of his humility and not wanting to be a distraction in any way, uh, never second-guessed coaches or Monday morning quarterback them. Uh, but he was there as a source of knowledge and wisdom uh, because of his life experiences and his basketball experiences. And uh, Coach Wooden had you know, a stretch uh, where UCLA struggled. His first 15 years um, – you know, there were no Final Fours, no national championships. But the last 12 years, uh, 10 out of 12, he brought home the hardware, uh, seven consecutive championships, 10 in 12 years, uh, four undefeated seasons, and 88 straight wins at one point. So he really, as he liked to say, uh, was a slow learner. But once he figured it out, he was pretty good. Uh, he won his first championship at 53 years old and retired at 65 with the championship 
And then he was with us up until the age of 99. Uh, he was just short of his 100th birthday uh, when he passed away in 2010 on June 4th. Wow. I remember I went to the McDonald's All-American game in Ames, Iowa. Oh, help me out. 98 or 99, somewhere in there. Um, and I, uh, or my uncle Jeff took me, I remember the story and Wooden was sitting at the scores table with uh, Don Showalter. And um, I remember my uncle Jeff, like he was over there talking to Showalter and, you know, Wooden sitting right there. And again, I think I was in, I don't know, the fourth or fifth grade or something like that. And just, you know, first off, what fourth or fifth grader knows who he is? And apparently I did. So I walked over and, you know, shook his hand and whatever else. And I remember writing him um, a letter after that and, you know, just thanking him and all this stuff. And, and, you know, I don't know how long it was a couple weeks, a month or whatever it, it, I got a letter back in the mail and I still have it to this day. It's in my hand right now while I'm talking to you, but, and I'll, I should take a picture in Texas to you. Cause it's, I mean, it, it, this is pretty cool. He, he signed like a business card and then he wrote me like a little note and I've had it framed, you know, ever since then. And you know, it's, it's, it's over 20 years old. And I just think that's the coolest thing. There's probably not very many of these out there, but yeah, I mean, I got respect for him. And, and you mentioned that, that short window, uh, he, he, he won his first one when, uh, when he was 53 years old and then retired at 65, like, come on with 10, 10 national titles. Like that's unheard of and probably will never be duplicated ever again. Yeah. He was unique because clearly he was a teacher first. And so his interest in education and his love of language is one of the things that made him such an outstanding basketball coach. Uh, he enjoyed using metaphor and using sport which in its purest form should be a metaphor for life. So it was about preparing not only for the upcoming season, but preparing for the game of life beyond sport. And so the virtues, the values that he instilled in his players individually and his teams collectively uh, are lessons that sustain you beyond sport. Uh, And that's why his former players have such reverence for him. And some of them will admit uh, they didn't fully appreciate the lessons he was teaching at the time they were playing for him. Uh, it was decades later when they were in different careers or raising a family uh, that they realized what a profound effect he had on their lives. Um, and so, again, you go over to his place to talk basketball, but somehow he'd redirect um, the subject to things that transcended just basketball. Uh, he could talk basketball, whether it's the two-two-one press or the high post offense or Uh, any element of the game. Uh, He could break it down with the best of them. Uh, But what really interested most was bringing out the potential, uh, getting closer to the full expression of the potential of young people, both through working with them individually, but also molding uh, winning teams. But he didn't talk about winning. He talked about all the things that go into being successful and achieving. It didn't guarantee winning, but it increased the probabilities or the odds. And once he put it all together, when they started to recruit at a higher level, uh, they got Poly Pavilion, a great facility. Uh, UCLA was growing into a world-class university. And Coach Wooden played a big part in that because of the attention that he brought and the interest that people had in his basketball teams. And that helped to elevate the university. And uh, they now clearly are, from a public education standpoint, one of the best universities in the world. But uh, he was really after 
uh, old-fashioned teaching. And uh, that's what allowed him, I think, his interest in people and his interest in psychology. Uh, he actually took a psychology class each spring at UCLA. He would audit it, sit in on the class because he wanted to learn from the top psychology teachers on that campus. He realized he was getting older, but he was continuing to coach young people that were the same age from 18 to 22 years old. And through the assistant coaches that he picked to have on his staff and between his interest uh, and along with his interest in psychology, uh, he was able to stay relevant, adjust, adapt, be flexible enough in his thinking. Uh, he wasn't flexible in terms of the things he had conviction about, uh, fundamentals, uh, conditioning, both mental and physical conditioning, uh, being able to quickly and properly execute fundamentals under duress with game pressure, uh, playing as a unit, uh, being on time when time's involved, not embarrassing the basketball program, those things uh, he was pretty unwavering on. Uh, but the modifications, the adjustments, uh, his ability to adapt to what was going on in the world, uh, and that's what allowed him to coach GI Bill guys coming back from World War II when he was at Indiana State, um, and even early at UCLA. It was the early, it was the late 1940s when he came to UCLA, and he retired in the mid 70s. So uh, he went through a lot in his co coaching career: World War II, Vietnam, uh, the Korean War, the sexual revolution, uh, the whole drug experimentation uh, era. Um, you know, you think of all the presidents. Uh, that he was coaching and all the different presidents. And he wrote letters. Uh, he was pen pals with all the presidents of uh, the United States. So just really an interesting guy, but he never lost the common touch. His Midwest upbringing, Martinsville, Indiana, uh, Purdue Boilermaker, uh, that kept him grounded um, in a town where it's uh, easy to lose sight of being grounded uh, in Hollywood and in Los Angeles. But uh, he stayed true to those old school virtues and values that he was raised with. You mentioned Purdue. Um, and that's where you're, you know, you got your college basketball coaching start at Purdue and you're from San Francisco. So tell me this, like when you get to West Lafayette, Indiana, and you got your car and you're looking around, you're, are you going like, uh, where the hell am I at? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's really interesting. I like yourself, had an interest in coaching at a very young age, uh, going back to my high school coach who had a big influence on me. Uh, George Lewis was my frosh soft, you know, JV coach. And Pete Hayward uh, was the varsity coach at Sir Francis Drake High School in Northern California. And um, I was a very average basketball player, a Division II uh, prospect, uh, ended up playing small college basketball. But our high school team uh, had 10 college basketball players, probably five or six division one and four or five division two players on it. And we won back-to-back -back state championships in 1981 and 82. And we were 65 and one. We only lost one game in two years. We won 58 wow. straight games and uh, we were 34 and 0 our senior year. And that led to all of us getting opportunities to play on different levels. But I think being around that basketball program a high school powerhouse uh, had an influence on me wanting to coach and my college coach Kevin Wilson uh, also was a mentor and um, so I was interested in coaching that led to me writing letters to Bobby Knight uh, Mike Krzyzewski and Gene Cady and uh, an assistant coach at UNLV at the time Tim Gergovich who was the assistant for coach Tarkanian and I picked those four coaches 
because they were all defensive oriented. Uh, they were different. You know, some were matchup zone, some was man to man, some were full court pressure, but they all believed in defense. And uh, so I wrote letters to those guys while I was in college. And uh, remarkably, they wrote back. And I was just asking for advice, you know, books I should read, clinics I should attend, camps I should go to. And uh, that led to me when I used up my college eligibility to visiting those four programs uh, in the middle of a season and watching those coaches at work up close, um, breaking down game film, getting to sit on the bench, being timeout, the locker room, pregame, halftime, postgame, and um, just watching masters uh, at work. And then I went back, worked the summer camps during the summer. And then in 1988, I was fortunate in August of that summer, Coach Katie called. It was like 32 years ago now and gave me an opportunity to get on his staff and uh, meeting Coach Wooden while I was at Purdue, played a part in ending up at UCLA. And uh, then here we are now, uh, 32 years later. I was just actually just going to mention that, like with your relationship with Gene Katie and, and obviously John Wooden um, being a Purdue guy before a UCLA guy, I was, I, I was just going to mention, I mean, was Wooden ever around at, in, in West Lafayette when, you know, during your time or, or, or was there ever like a previous relationship, you know, set in stone there? I mean, Yes, I met him, and when he did come into town, um, whether he was being honored at a Purdue basketball family reunion or if he was uh, speaking uh, at Purdue, um, I was given the responsibility to make sure, you know, he got from the airport to the hotel, the hotel to practices uh, or to games, uh, to the bookstore, if he was doing an autograph session there, um, signing one of his books, and uh, – just the time he took with people is what I remember most. I mean, naturally, you can't help but be impressed uh, by his ability to, you know, recite poetry. And uh, again, you know, touching on uh, Abraham Lincoln, who was his favorite American. And uh, the quotes, you know, some that I remember that really jump out was, uh, you know, the greatest thing we could do for those we love is to not do for them what they're capable of doing for themselves and that's tied into self-reliance and uh understanding wow. yeah whether it's a parent a teacher or a coach that fine line of you know uh, understanding that the struggle is where we grow and yet also being there with that support when necessary um and i think that's a sense and a feel uh you know parents with their first child versus their fourth child right a coach I was much different at 32 years old as the head coach at UCLA than I was at 50 years old as the head coach at St. John's. And uh, it's what you've learned in between in terms of life experience. And uh, when we're younger, right, we don't know, we don't know. We have to learn through trial and error. But uh, yeah, the greatest thing we could do for those we love is to not do for them what they're capable of doing for themselves. Um, and the greatest thing, you know, parents could do for their children is to love one another uh, so their children get to see what love looks like. Uh, that was another really powerful uh, quote of his. And he would be the first to admit, sometimes he's paraphrasing uh, from a Mother Teresa, who is his favorite person because of her grace and humanity and kindness and a life dedicated to service to help others, to extend the olive branch, to help those in need. Um, so again, uh, it was so much more than basketball. 
And yet his approach is what led to these outstanding teams and what it meant to be a good teammate and a good person and to achieve. And uh, he was really special. I could go on and on, but I enjoyed uh, my time in West Lafayette. Uh, Bruce Weber was an assistant coach at the time. I uh, learned a great deal from him. Uh, Tom Ryder uh, was also an assistant. I learned a great deal from He was also uh, someone that enjoyed language and had been an English major in college. Um, he's, he passed away uh, much too soon, but uh, learned a, a great deal from him. And Frank Kendrick, uh, who played at Purdue, was an All-American and played for the Golden State Warriors, was also on that staff. So coming from California to see the Big Ten arenas, to be able to watch those coaches, Judd Heathcote at Michigan State, uh, Pat Foster had come over from uh, Duke. He was at Northwestern. Tom Davis was at Iowa. Bobby Knight at Indiana. Clem Haskins was at Minnesota. Uh, Bill Frieder was at Michigan. And so uh, Coach Katie had it going. And uh, to be able to watch him match wits like a great chess match, uh, Rommel and Patton, uh, great leaders uh, preparing their their teams for battle in the Big Ten. Uh, yep. it, was, it was really special. I've been to Mackey a couple times, uh, and I will give it up. I've been to a lot of college basketball arenas, and I've always stayed true to this. I don't know who he is, or I don't know, Coach, when the last time you were at a Purdue home game, but they have the best PA announcer ever in, in all of college basketball, probably even the NBA. It, this guy has got it going on. I don't know who he is or what his name is, whatever, but I just remember I've been to two games there, and I'm going like, dude, this announcer has got me jacked up, and I'm not even rooting for Purdue. <laughs> yeah, it's a gladiator pit, and uh, you're right. I've broadcast some games over the years. I brought one of my UCLA teams in there. Coach Katie and I had a home-and-home in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, so I was there as an assistant, uh, brought a team in there as a head coach being on the opposing bench. And then I've gone in as a broadcaster, having covered the big 10 for a number of years. And, uh, it's right up there to me with the best venues in college basketball. There are some that are smaller, more like the Wrigley fields, uh, the old venerable venues, um, Cameron indoor stadium, Allen field house, uh, Mac court up at Oregon uh, before they built the new arena. Uh, Matthew Knight arena is beautiful, but it's more of a state of the art. Um, so it really is just your preference. I love the old school, uh, you know, Hinkle field house. I put that right up there, uh, but those larger venues, Carver Hawkeye, Mackey arena assembly hall, uh, they get it going. They're raucous environments. And, um, uh, if I had to, you know, be honest about it, uh, the Big Ten fans and the attendance, you know, basically uh, backs it up. If you look at the data, uh, they're such loyal fans. Uh, even during seasons where you're struggling, uh, they turn out and they support their teams. And the schools are really part of the fabric uh, of those towns. And, um, and some great basketball in the Pac-10, now the Pac-12, and, and the Big East has some remarkable rivalries and great tradition. Uh, but the Big Ten is just a cut above when it comes to the support of the fans, the tradition and the heritage, and the way in which uh, the universities and the athletic programs are, are really woven into the fabric of those communities. 
So you were the head coach at St. John's and the head coach at UCLA, Los Angeles, New York. First off, did you ever like walk on Madison Square Garden and like have to pinch yourself a little bit? I mean, obviously, Paul Pavilion's cool. Don't get me wrong, but you're coaching at the Garden, and that's something special. And you know, <clears throat> excuse me. And then you're rolling. I mean, against obviously big time uh, opponents in the Big East Conference. Did you ever have to like take a take a step back and go like, I mean, I'm the head coach at St. John's, and we play in the Garden. Yeah, there were definitely times where you do have to pinch yourself and ask if you're dreaming. Um, I remember my first year, that happened a number of times because uh, I was named the interim coach, you know, a couple weeks before the start of the season. And UCLA was going to do a national search. And um, they didn't know if it was going to be a a month um, or, you know, a couple months. But the idea was for me just to hold the fort down while they did a national search. And um, our team struggled early, and then we caught fire late, and we ended up winning the Pac-10 and going to the Elite Eight, and we lost to a Big Ten team, Minnesota, Clem Haskins' team, in the Alamo Dome, uh, a game short of the Final Four. But uh, mid-February is when they lifted the interim tag, and I became the permanent coach for seven years. Um, But there were a number of moments in that first season uh, where you're pinching yourself and you can't really believe it's happening. Because uh, we played Louisville that year. Denny Crum was the coach. We played Kansas uh, early in Roy Williams' tenure. Duke, uh, Mike Krzyzewski, obviously the coach there. And then in our league, uh, Mike Montgomery, Stanford, Lou Olson at uh, Arizona. And so uh, for someone that had never been a head coach, it was uh, really – a wild ride. And, uh, and I really feel that way about all 32, 33 years. I came from a small town in Northern California, population of 2,500. I finished at Chapman university, which had an enrollment of 2,500, uh, division two basketball. And so, uh, while I had aspirations to someday coach at the highest level, um, I did never think it would be St. John's or UCLA, uh, even Purdue as an assistant, and so really grateful that I had, you know, good mentors and you have to be fortunate. Uh, you work hard, you prepare, but you really got to get breaks. And, uh, and there's been hardship too. Uh, you know, I've been fired twice, uh, lost my mother and father in the last five, six years, uh, missed a season with cancer at St. John's, uh, my second year there. Um, so, you know, all these things inform us and uh, they actually make you a better teacher. And uh, I wouldn't want anyone to uh, have cancer uh, having gone through it. Uh, But it does inform us. And in a powerful way, our sensibilities are informed differently. We look at the world through a different lens or prism um, as you start to go through hardship. And it uh, creates a more compassionate prism or lens that we look at the world through. And um, so uh, just grateful. But Madison Square Garden... um, that's as good as it gets. I mean, uh, those were moments where you talk about adrenaline and you've got to naturally throttle it and channel all that energy um, and be able to focus just like we expect our teams to, because as a coach, you got to make decisions and you need things to slow down so you can make the right judgments on when to call a timeout or when not to call a timeout, or, uh, substitutions, adjustments you're going to make. Um, but there is this other side of you that's aware of how special 
and it's really uh, gratitude and grace and uh, just being thankful that uh, you're able to participate uh, as a coach working with young people. Uh, it, it's special. And I enjoy TV as well. That's another gift, but different uh, than coaching. Yeah, uh, that's a good segue into this one. I know. Um, so you had a little room there between UCLA and St. John's. What is it, seven years or so? And um, you started your broadcasting, you know, in there. Obviously, you got the St. John's job, and now you're back into broadcasting. What? Um, how about like a little something like behind the scenes, something kind of fun? I mean, like, what is uh, like a typical day broadcasting? Because all we see is, you know, you turn the TV on at seven o'clock, and okay, here we go. Duke Carolina's on ESPN. I mean, like, what? What do we? What do we not know? You know that 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 goes into a typical game day for someone like yourself now broadcasting. Well, I think you know game day it's preparation, and so one of the ideal elements of transitioning from coaching uh, into television is there are aspects that are similar uh, in terms of knowing the personnel of both teams and studying game film. Uh, so that you can provide for the viewers a more informed broadcast. Uh, as an analyst, uh, we're really teaching and coaching and trying to bring the viewer uh, inside on a virtual tour of what's happening uh, in those timeouts, uh, what's likely to happen coming out of the locker room at halftime, and uh, being able to also teach through uh, how we communicate as a broadcaster and having a conversation uh, with my play-by-play partner, but also the sideline reporter. Uh, and we all have to listen to one another. And that's a common thread uh, to any group that's successful. Uh, are we listening to one another and communicating uh, in the most effective manner? And in this case, uh, the objective is to have an entertaining broadcast. But we also want to inform uh, the viewer and we want to be on top of the unfolding narratives. And you have to be back to flexibility, uh, alert and ready uh, to pivot and go in a different direction. Cause we may go into a game with a certain idea of what's going to happen. And all of a sudden uh, the number one team in the country is on the ropes. Uh, they're on their heels. And now we've got an upset um, or at least the potential of an upset. And so we've got to shift off maybe what we thought coming into the game was going to be the case. Um, but going to shoot arounds, talking to assistant coaches, um, you know, I'm fortunate because the relationships I have with a number of these coaches, having worked in the Big Ten as an assistant, worked at UCLA as an assistant and head coach, and then also coached the Big East as head coach, those three conferences, I have an innate familiarity uh, with the arenas, with the style of basketball. Uh, and naturally, it changes uh, when there's a coaching, you know, turnover. Um, but you still have a good feel and in six degrees of basketball, as you know, with your father being a coach and, and you now coaching, um, in one way or another, it seems we're always, uh, you know, close with one another. There's, there's a, there's a relationship there. There's a rapport, some tie in a basketball family tree or in someone on that staff or a former player, uh, someone you coached against, someone you covered in television. So, uh, in many respects, uh, it's similar to coaching, uh, but at the end of it, you know, you put the headset down on that table and, uh, you know, we go get a bite to eat and we're getting ready like uh, barnstormers, you know, jazz musicians uh, to go to that next arena and call another game where in coaching, 
Uh, when you win, you're getting ready for the next one. You know, when you lose, you're regrouping, retooling, and trying to get ready for the next one. And obviously, there's a different degree of pressure because uh, in broadcasting, you're undefeated. And uh, as a coach, obviously, uh, you're responsible. The buck stops here. Uh, yeah. For the success What's that, I mean, or like, failure how of the often- team. How out? How out are your, um, I guess, scheduled, so to speak? I mean, do you know, like, uh, you know, two weeks before, a week before, you know, maybe the, you know, at the start of the season, like, hey, lad, you got these uh, twenty-five games throughout the year. I mean, like, how does that go? I think the the average person would be interested to listen to you talk about this. Yeah, I I know a month before the season, uh, you know, what nights I'm going to be in studio and what nights I'm going to be on the road calling games. Now it's interesting when I was at ABC and ESPN, I probably did 80% games and 20% studio. Now at Fox, I do 80% studio, 20% game. So it's almost been a complete reversal uh, yeah, in terms kind of, of the proportion sure. of assignments. And I enjoy both um, for different reasons. But uh, games, the adrenaline is built in. Uh, there's, you know, the pageantry, you've got the the band, the student section, the shoes are squeaking right there on the court in front of you. Uh, you're getting to see the adjustments that the coaches are making. And I enjoy that trying to, you know, play it forward, not just cover what happened and why it happened, but also what's going to happen next. Uh, what, what we can anticipate, what are the counters uh, coming off, you know, a sequence of, of plays uh, or a run because basketball is a game of runs. And uh, what does one coach do to try and stop that bleeding? And uh, what does the coach that's, you know, in the midst of a run do to sustain it and extend it? And, uh, and then making the adjustments coming down the stretch based on time and score and matchups, and personnel, and, uh, you know, when, again, to use a timeout and when to hold that timeout and, and kind of breaking that down and making the viewer aware of some things that maybe otherwise they wouldn't know uh, unless they've coached themselves for a number of years. Right. What, uh, what's the best tradition in college basketball to you? Tradition as in. Basically I was just looking for dollar beer night at Creighton games. That's that's why I asked you the question. Oh, (laughs) without a doubt, dollar beer night. I was going to go to maybe rivalries, you know, when we're talking Indiana, Purdue, North Carolina, Duke, USC, UCLA. Dollar, but, dollar uh, beer night in Omaha. Yeah, free beverages in Omaha with that raucous fan group. I call it, you know, the indoor tailgate. Uh, just a celebration <laughs> of the Blue Jays, a celebration of basketball. And, of course, their style of play, let it fly. Uh, the fact that, you know, they play, get the ball inbounds or even off a turnover, uh, a rebound, a defensive stop. Uh, they get down the floor, the Blue Jays do, and get organized uh, before defenses get back. They do that as well as anyone in the country. I know North Carolina through the years uh, has been outstanding in terms of their early offense. Uh, some of Tarkanian's UNLV teams, uh, some of Patino's teams, uh, you know, uh, no doubt Duke had some great teams in transition, but uh, coach Max ability to adapt to his personnel, to adjust to the changing rosters and implement that system uh, is, is special. And the confidence uh, his team plays with, and not only do they play fast, but they play smart. I mean, that's one of the misconceptions sometimes people have is if a team's playing fast, 
that they're not playing smart. It takes great discipline to play fast, take care of the ball, not turn it over, get good looks at the rim, and then also show judgment that when you don't have a good look to keep that ball moving and playing hot potato until you get a better look. And I think all those things there, those boxes are checked by Coach McDermott and his staff uh, year in and year out. Right. Coach, are you an NBA guy? You watch the NBA? You, you, do you keep up on it, or, or are you strictly college ball? No, I do keep up on the NBA, but I have to admit, um, more often than not, it's following either coaches I know uh, that I've met through the years, and then my players. You know, I had 17 kids uh, that, you know, were drafted and, and played in the NBA. And uh, most recently, Trevor Ariza was my last recruit at UCLA, and then Maurice Harkless, um, who now is with the New York Knicks, was with me at St. John's. Jakar Sampson, I think, is with the Sacramento Kings. Actually, the Indiana Pacers uh, was also with me. Don Pointer with the Cleveland Cavaliers. So it's it's also following the career path of, you know, the people that I worked with and, and coached uh, because naturally you want to see them uh, excel and do well. And, and – I'm just as proud of the guys that have gone to broadcasting like John Crispin and Sean Farnham and guys that uh, gone into coaching like Earl Watson and Jason Flowers. And, uh, so it's fun. Some are in ministry, some are in education, some are agents, um, some are in management in the NBA like Gerald Mackins with the New York Knicks. Um, so I follow the NBA, but, but more than following it, it's about following the people I know and care about and love uh, that are part of that level of basketball. Sure. Well, coach, I won't keep you much longer, man. This has been, uh, this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed uh, the conversation, you know, especially all that cool stuff about coach Wooden that, you know, maybe the average person wouldn't get to hear or, or know about, I should say, but anyway, um, next time you're in Omaha or if I'm an idiot, the final four, I owe you a couple uh, cold ones for, for, for doing this. I, I, I really appreciate it and uh, we'll keep in touch. And um, yeah, again, this has been awesome. Yeah. I look forward to doing it again, Tyler. And uh, thanks for having me on and uh, I'll take you up on those tall boys uh, next time we get together. Mountains will be blue coach. I appreciate it. <laughs> take care. See you, bud. Bye-bye. Bye.